Hello and welcome to Woman Self Made Podcast with me, Marina Bennett. Today my guest is Baroness Barbara Younger-Waldscone. Barbara is a member of the House of Lords and during the course of her incredible career, she held among many other such posts as Vice Chairman of the BBC, Chief Executive of the Environment Agency and the Care Quality Commission, she has been a chair of English Nature. She's currently a chair of Woodland Trust. She was also a chancellor of Cranfield University and an honorary fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh. Please welcome Barbara Baroness Young of Old School. Barbara, hello. So wonderful to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for welcoming me to the House of Lords, where we are right now in the interview room, the beautiful setting. How are you today? Very well, very well. Welcome to the House of Lords. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my first question, as a young girl, who did you want to become? And did you ever see yourself in politics and being a member of House of Lords? I never, ever thought that I would be in the House of Lords, never entered my head. I th I didn't know that I really had much ambition to be anybody. I, I mean, I wanted to be an actress. So mm -hmm. I suppose all little girls do that. But I also, um, I also wanted to be a famous horsewoman because I was very keen on horses. So my ambitions then were absolutely not what happened in life. So what did then go wrong? All right, <laughs> all right. <laughs> well, I suppose as I grew up, I mean, I was born in the rural Perthshire in Scotland and we lived in a village with 42 inhabitants. So it was a very sort of safe and enclosed and small scale community. And I didn't know that half the world existed, to be mm -hmm. honest. Um, and so as I got older and went to school and started doing more things, of course, my horizons broadened. But I was always a bit of a late developer, I think. And even when I went to university, I was still comparatively not sure about what I wanted to do. I knew that I enjoyed studying classics, which I did at school. And I went to do that at Edinburgh University. But, you know, nobody uh, was clear about what you could do with a classics degree in those days. I mean, it was supposed to be a good thing for teaching you to think but it didn't mm -hmm. actually give you any qualification for anything else and so I could have done almost anything I suppose um, and I wanted to be a librarian at one stage which <laughs> would have been dreadful I would have been stuck in a room and doing stuff rather than being out and about so I'm awfully glad that I was clueless right up until I left university. So how did you end up from classics in politics? Well I, I failed dismally to even apply for a job at the end of my degree because I was so busy trying to get through my finals and having end-of-university parties and things like that, um, that I went and did a postgrad at Strathclyde University in the business school. And that really opened my eyes because um, we started looking at political issues and managerial issues and financial issues. And all of a sudden, they seemed incredibly interesting. But friends of mine had gone into the health service as graduate trainees, so mm -hmm. I followed them in because it, it looked as if they were having a good time and getting a good training. And I got more and more interested right from the start in the policies and politics behind the health system. And I had a wonderful boss who used to talk to me as if I understood policies and mm -hmm. politics. 
and I learned a huge amount from him, even though most of the time I hadn't a clue what he was on about. And that was really developmental and formative. So uh, he was my first proper boss and he was tremendous. And uh, that was your beginning of pol beginning of Korean politics? Well, I was working um, in the health service and also got interested in the politics of the NHS. And I got to know lots of politicians mm -hmm. through that. And I eventually became very active in our professional body, the Institute for Health Services Management, and eventually became president of that when I was quite young. And that kind of got me into the swing of things mm -hmm. in health politics. And then when I decided to leave the health service and went into the environment, all of that stood me in very good stead. And I just transferred what I knew about lobbying and about advocacy, and about campaigning and about policy analysis to the environment and the rest as they say is history the rest is politics <laughs> one of uh, one of my favorite uh, podcasts um, so you uh, were appointed a peer in 1997 so that's now at 25 years in the heart of politics how was how has it been 25 years here House of Lords is a bit like war, you know, 95% hanging about and 5% sheer exhilaration. <laughs> so um, sometimes you feel a huge sense of excitement and privilege that you're in the thick of what's going on politically. Uh, but other times it, there's a lot of, you know, day-to-day, -day pretty routine, detailed analysis of legislation and uh, select committee work mm -hmm. that is it's interesting, but it's hard work. But what the House of Lords does for you, of course, is gives you a window into politics as a whole. And of course, when I came in in 97, it was immediately when the Tony Blair Labour government mm -hmm. was elected. And we were on the crest of a wave. We had a big majority. We were doing lots of stuff, changing lots of things. There was a real excitement. And the success of Labour governments really cranked through a whole load of change for the benefit of this country. And that was that was really very satisfying and gratifying. And at that time, I was working in a number... I mean, I was doing my parliamentary work alongside a day job. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I was doing things like running the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, being vice chairman of the BBC, running the Environment Agency. Just you know, side it, hustles. It was, yeah. <laughs> it was um, you know, it was pretty full on. But it all kind of fitted together because my environmental day job and my environmental political work all fitted together pretty well and it was at a time when you know I could make a real difference because the party I was part of was in government and we could make changes happen it's a lot less easy when you're in opposition you know it's grinding mm -hmm. work to mm -hmm. get change to happen when you're in opposition so the last 13 years have been hard work well we'll see it might change who knows? Who knows? Not counting any chickens. <laughs> <laughs> the main role of House of Lords is obviously scrutinizing the legislation. Is there a particular uh, piece of legislation that you were able to change or transform that stands out to you that you may be particularly proud of? I think there are big pieces of legislation that we all worked hard on um, to improve. And that's all we can do in the Lords. You know, you're there to improve legislation. On the odd occasion, you slide things in that the government hasn't thought of and that you mm -hmm. get them to accept, which is great. Um, when we had the Climate Change Act going through, I managed to get the government to create a committee for 
looking at the impacts of climate change, not how we reduce climate change, but what we do about the very mm -hmm. real impacts on heat and water and floods and other things that are happening anyway, regardless of how good we are at stopping the current climate change, because there's already carbon in the atmosphere. And it, that was great. You know, I lobbied hard for that. I put the case, government accepted it, and mm -hmm. we got it through. Similarly, when I was chief executive of Diabetes UK in the, in, a, in um, just after um, 2010, I can't even remember which bill it was I got it through. I think it was an education bill where, where I wasn't playing a big role, but I managed to get a, an amendment through that I put in a statutory duty for schools to look after children with long-term health conditions, because up until then, it was hugely variable between schools and there was no real duty laid on schools to do that. So that's helped kids with diabetes, with epilepsy, with all sorts mm -hmm. of lifelong conditions have a much better deal in schools. And I'm really proud of that. And that, again, was by persuading a Conservative government that this was a thing that they wanted to do. So there are, uh, there are cases like that. And then there are other bills where you just work your socks off to get them better. The Environment Bill, the mm -hmm. Agriculture Bill. Mm -hmm. We're doing one on levelling up at the moment, which you know seems to be going on forever. Um, the retained EU legislation bill, which we're going through at the moment, all of those, you're just, you're a cog in the wheel, because of course there's a big team working on these bills, uh, um, either the government team or the, or the opposition combined. And so you're a bit player, but there are things where you, you know, you feel, yeah, I did that, I did that. <laughs> Oh, that's that's wonderful. Thank you. Are you equally involved in all types of legislation or you tend to specialise? I think we all really specialise a bit in the Lords because um, you can't cover the whole area. And one of the things that I'm clear about for me is that I don't really like taking part in legislation unless I either know about it or have really been very well briefed. Um, because you can unless you understand the arguments and understand what government's trying to achieve, you can't really responsibly um, respond to it. So um, I tend to focus on the things that I've had some background in, issues of environment, land use, climate change, science and technology uh, from my time at Cranfield University, healthcare, though I try not mm -hmm. to do healthcare because healthcare is so big it can swallow you up and really try to specialise in the areas where I can be acknowledged as being a bit of an expert and therefore have something that's worth listening to. You mentioned that being in House of Lords is a um, lot of work. Uh, outsiders might not initially appreciate because it might sound very glamour uh, glamorous. Uh, could you describe your typical day, a uh, typical working day of a baroness in the House of Lords? Well... It, it, it's a, the great thing about it is that there isn't there actually is no a typical <laughs> working day. But generally speaking, we tend to have our select committees in the morning, which when we examine a particular subject in some depth and produce a report. Uh, at the moment, I'm on the Environment and Climate Change Select Committee, but I've been on the Science and Technology one and some of the European ones in the past. And then in the afternoon and the evening, we have legislation and we run two chambers, the main chamber and a second chamber, and so there's legislation of many, many sorts going on. Sometimes you have legislation in both chambers and you're running backwards and forwards trying to balance the two. And in between times, when you're not actually on the floor of the House, you'll be being lobbied by interest groups. You'll be going to briefings. 
you'll be in the library trying to put together understanding about a particular issue you're following up on. You'll be putting down questions. Uh, you'll be meeting ministers. The odd occasion you might even manage lunch. Not very often. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's and, and we work till 10 most nights. So, you know, and that's Monday to Thursday. And then I fit in my other jobs, of which I've got several in between those bits. So it's there's not there's not a real pattern to a week, let's put it like that. What is your favorite part of the job? And then there will be a follow up question, what yeah. is what is something that you don't particularly enjoy? I I really I really love the select committees. I mean they're just so we have the ability to call witnesses, we can ask for briefings from the library, people will send us stuff on a particular subject you can really do a deep dive into it we'll have a special advisor we'll have committee staff and so it's a thorough job that we do and it's fascinating you know in the environment and climate change committee it's great to be able to go into that depth on very current issues but when I was on the science and technology committee you know I'm a non-scientist and mm. I used to say to them I don't know why I'm on this committee but it was fascinating and there were lots of topics where It was just incredibly interesting to hear what the experts and the scientists had to say, but you could actually help uh, direct our findings by understanding how that would interface with the public and with politics and with communications and and often be the voice of common sense in the face of scientific over-enthusiasm. <laughs> I remember doing an inquiry into autonomous vehicles where all the autonomous vehicles nerds came in and told us how in five years time we wouldn't be driving and, the, and robots would be driving mm -hmm. for us and well we're miles away from that and we knew that that we had to put a note of caution in about just how far advanced the mm -hmm. technology was far less all the other social issues surrounding it including issues like insurance and responsibility course, and yeah. liability if there are accidents and things like that. So it's it, I love the select committees, but there's nothing gets your blood going better than having a really good amendment that the public support that you've got harnessed around the house supporters from the cross benches, from the bishops, from even a few conservative rebels from the Labour front bench. <laughs> you know your stuff. You give the minister a tough time. You absolutely beat him into a pulp, and he has to give way, or else he's knows that he's going to get beaten at the vote. And that is a huge satisfaction when you see justice being served, as it were. <laughs> And your least favourite part? Um, my least favourite part is is questions. We we have a question session every day for half an hour. You've got to have a loud voice to get in because we we don't get called by the speaker in this house. We're what's known, what's known as a self-regulating house. And... Um, That means everybody leaps to their feet and there's a sort of instant calculation of who should speak on seniority and Buggins turn and all sorts of stuff. And um, it's and then you ask a very brief question. The minister gives you an incredibly short answer that doesn't say anything at all. And it's just <laughs> it's political theatre. It's a bit it's a bit nihilist. I find it a pain in the neck, quite frankly. I've got a very quiet voice, so I never get in. And when I do get in. Minister doesn't actually answer the question. So it's become irksome. 
I just wanted to note that uh, you said that at some points uh, when you were younger, you wanted to be an actress and a librarian. And so now you spend lots of time in the library <laughs> and often you feel that you are in, in a theatre. So there is a bit of that. I mean, there is a bit of theatre in being on the floor of the house. And in fact, you know, the people that are most listened to are the ones who can put very serious evidence-based points in the most attractive way sometimes it's because they absolutely are serious and and sincere and intense about it and sometimes it's because they're a knock knockabout comedy act but at the heart of mm -hmm. it all is a real kernel of something important the ones that drive the house mad are the ones who drone on endlessly and read their speeches and bore the pants off us yeah. <laughs> i cannot not ask what is it like being a woman in politics, but in particularly in, uh, in the House of Lords, do you think it's, is it different? Is it more difficult being a woman here? And also, have you seen any change throughout the 25 years of what was it like being a woman peer 25 years ago versus what it is now? I think the changes were well on the way by the time I arrived. Uh, when I arrived, we appointed a woman to head up the House. Mm -hmm. to be leader of the House of Lords, Margaret Jay, Baroness Jay. It was at the time when the Conservative, when the Labour government, the new Labour government, was very, very keen on female MPs and had all women lists. And so there was a real pressure to get more women into the into the Lords as well. So there was a, an amazing cohort and had been for some time of very, very strong women. And the women who'd come in prior to that uh, you know, in the in the early days of the life periods, they were, you know, pretty pretty something else. They were redoubtable women. <laughs> so, the people you met here were just stunningly good. Even if you didn't agree with what they said, they were f formidable. I think is the word. And so, I didn't really feel there was a problem with being a woman in the Lords. I think it's very different in the Commons. I think the Commons is still, even though they've now got very many more women MPs is still a bit blokish, whereas mm. the Lords is only blokish when some of the peers who used to be MPs are sometimes a bit uh, stuck in their bad habits from the Commons. We have to knock that out with them when they come along <laughs> the corridor and become peers. What, this, what the House of Lords does is not the kind of rough, uh, shouty, belligerent, aggressive stuff that the Commons goes in for. It goes in for icy, rapier sharp irony. <laughs> and so you'll find yourself being completely demolished by a very carefully crafted sentence. And you think, I deserve that. Goodness, how did he think of that? <laughs> so it's much more forensic and civilized, but it's tough. You know, it's not, we don't pull punches. And do you think it's well represented? So n not not just on gender, but uh, on the culture, ethnic, does it represent well the British society now or more can be done? When we first came in in 97, we really bust the gut to get um, more younger, younger people, a better diversity, both of backgrounds and of ethnicity. There was a period more recently when I think that re didn't quite happen. We are 
still miles too old. I mean, I really wanted us to have more 30-year-old and 40-year-old peers in, and for a while that just wasn't happening. And the, the average age is still 74 years old, which is ridiculous. I mean, that's the average. Average, wow. Now, there are some older peers who are absolutely brilliant and go on well into their 90s firing on all cylinders. But equally well, there are a number who just decline over the years. And, it, and it's it, it's not good. The inheritors of the earth of the young, we need more of them helping us make decisions. We're pretty mixed in background terms. We're still not 50-50 women, men, but um, but we've got representatives of all the major religions. We've got all the professions. We've uh, still got a controversial um, group in that the bishops of the Church of England are in the House of Lords and people say, well, why, why not other religions? But we do have representatives from other religions, even though they haven't got a place here as of right. So there's been a lot of effort to try and make it more mixed, but we're still probably too white, too old, too male, and there's more to do. Just touching on um, on bringing the younger people, do you think that will change of what you said you're so proud of being um, being polished and intelligent and, and brilliant? And a lot of it would com comes with experience and uh, often age. Uh, if, you, if you have uh, lots of 30-year-olds, would it not shift the dynamic more uh, towards House of Commons style? I don't think so. I hope not. Um, because we're a self-regulating house, people have to be responsible. You know, the whole place would just wouldn't work if we weren't. We haven't got anybody there to tell us what to do, so we have to tell ourselves what to do. And I think the kind of tone is so different that people respond to that remarkably quickly. And we have got, we have got younger members of the, the Lords who are incredibly thoughtful and eloquent i mean i don't i don't think we should say everybody's got to be a kind of super duper speaker because there are people with backgrounds who will come who aren't super duper speakers but but if they're committed and sincere and have their arguments well marshaled and based on evidence the house will listen to them providing they don't bore us <laughs> That's, that's the, the only crime in the House of Lords is being boring. <laughs> How well do members get along? And uh, do you hang out together? Do you have those occasional lunches? If you have have time together, do you, do you spend free free time together? Or is it very, oh, not very, quite formal? It's, um, it's, a, it's a weird mixture. I mean, the parties tend to hang out with fellow members of the party. Mm-hmm. So there's lots and lots of, we're in here so much, quite frankly, you've got to be, you know, you, you do develop friendships with folk. Um, there is also something known as the long table, which is um, either at lunch or dinner, you can you just have to sit next to the person, you sit at the next available seat, and that could be anybody you sat beside. And that's a great, because you talk to all sorts of folks, you wouldn't barrel up to and say, can I come and sit beside mm -hmm. you? And it's quite interesting. You can be absolutely daggers drawn with somebody on ideology and on politics and on the way forward on a particular political issue. But you can still talk to them about art or sport or, in my case, horses or mm -hmm. agriculture or whatever. And 
that's good. You know, we we appreciate each other for in as individuals, even though sometimes our view is that as individuals we're wildly misled and off beam in terms of what we believe in. <laughs> but you know, we can still like them as human beings. Sometimes not, of course. There are some people who I wouldn't give house room to if it was up to me. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you think it's different in the House of Commons? I think the House of Commons is ver- is a bit cliquey and it's very, very party political. Very party political. But there are cross-party friendships in the, the House of Commons as well. I mean, our, we, there are two other ways in which people get together. One is all party groups, which are... There's a l- lot of groups that span all the parties based on a particular subject. So, for example, I'm a member of the all-party group on um, universities, and that's because we're all interested in universities. And so you meet people um, right across the party divides. And there's a million and one all-party groups. So you know you will get to know those folk who, like, who work on the issues that you're working on. And that's across the Commons and the Lords. So that's a very useful mechanism. And there are some that are, you know, glue in the whole thing, like the, the all-party, the um, parliamentary choir and the various mm-hmm. parliamentary religious groups, parliamentary art groups. I'm a member of the Art and Heritage Group. We go to art exhibitions. I'm I'm playing hooky next week and going off to the Vermeer in <laughs> Amsterdam, uh, paid wholly by myself, may I say. Um, but the all-party group helped get us tickets and we're all going in a gang. And that is absolutely across all parties and across all ages and stages. So uh, it's good to get together with people who share the same interests. What is your view on the House of Lords and its balance of tradition and keeping up to date and being modern and going? <laughs> well, I think two things. One is there are some of the traditions I find terribly irksome, you know, things that get in the way of proper debate and business. Um, we're getting better at doing away with those, but they're still there. Uh, at the moment, one of the major things that I think is going badly wrong is the whole tradition of secondary legislation. The government increasingly, rather than having primary laws laid in Parliament and debated in the Chamber, is is depending on secondary legislation like regulations, and they're given less scrutiny. And it used to be that they were only things like uh, you know, what guidance would they give on an implementation of a piece of law or something like that? But increasingly, the government's using secondary legislation to decide really important issues. And the process for scrutiny of secondary legislation is not good. And the combination of relying on it more and it not being very effective is not helpful. And that's something that's got to be fixed. So that that that's one thing. The The other thing is a strictly practical thing. You know, we live in a building that is 250 years old and is falling apart and has got the electrics of a, you know, out-of-control fish fryer. And um, (laughs) it's a miracle we haven't all drowned or been burnt to death or the roof collapsed on us. And trying to square that with modern technology, the house authorities do the best they can in that we've got reasonable remote working facilities and reasonable IT facilities. But, you know, you can't, charging your phone is a major exercise in this yeah. building. <laughs> and hot desking is just about okay, but not very good. 
And so there's a whole load of kind of working techniques I think we could do better than we do. And I was hoping that we would do what we said we'd do, which is instead of trying to repair this aged building round about us, we'd all decant for 10 years while they made it safe. And by that time, we'd all have decided that we quite like being in a modern building and we'd stay in the modern mm. building. But what was your view of a uh, suggestion of the government moving House of Lords to York, was it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, they might as well have said they were going to move us to a warehouse in the North Circular. You know, <laughs> The reality is, like it or not, um, the Commons is here. Ministers report to the Commons and to the Lords, as do government departments. All of the machinery of government is here. All of the civil servants are primarily here. People don't want to have to lobby their MP in London and then go to York to talk to the House of Lords. It's to be honest, bonkers. I don't know how that idea came it's about. Bonkers, it doesn't bonkers, make any bonkers. sense. Well, it's the kind of... Alas, I think quite a lot of people in the Commons don't value the Lords. And it's interesting because we do this thing called... Um, learn with the Lords. It used to be called Peers in Schools. We go and talk to kids in schools about the work of the House of Lords. And they start by thinking that we're a waste of space. And they end up by thinking, yeah, gosh, you've got a point there. And quite valuing what the House of Lords does. And I think there are a lot of people in the House of Commons who haven't had the benefit of that and don't really understand what we do and just think we get in the way. And when new MPs and particularly new leaders of parties, you've got to kind of train them up in understanding how to use the Lords effectively. So um, the folks who wanted to send us to York clearly hadn't really <laughs> thought through how the whole business of legislation works or support or lobbying or cross-party groups. There would be no such things because they'd all be either commons or lords. They wouldn't be genuinely the part of the glue that holds the whole system together. Well, I'm pleased it didn't uh, didn't materialize. <laughs> Me too. I wouldn't have gone. <laughs> uh, can you recall some very memorable moments uh, over the last 25 years? Perhaps something fun or really unusual. Something just stand. Uh, maybe perhaps some encounter which was interesting. Something yeah. something just comes comes to mind. Sometimes it's knockabout comedy, and sometimes it's yeah, genuinely stirring. And Alf Dubbs, one of the Labour uh, peers, was one of the Jewish children who escaped Germany in the kinder transport and was brought here when he was a four-year-old. And he's now still in the house. He's over 90. And he campaigns very heavily for the rights of uh, immigrant children. And hearing Alf talk on behalf of immigrant children from knowing what his background is, is just... It's stirring. It's heartbreaking, bearing in mind how many children are coming across in boats and and seeking refuge here. And um, that that is, I think, the house at its best because they really listen to somebody like that who has has a life has been campaigning lifelong. John Bird, who started the big issue, is a crossbencher here, and when he talks about homelessness, he's experienced homelessness. You know, the, those are the moments where you sit and think, mm, these people know what they're talking about. On other occasions, it's just hysterically funny. We have um, Baroness Campbell, who's a crossbench peer who's very disabled. And she was describing the traumas she had trying to get a replacement for her pressure mattress 
And she told this story and it went on for about 20 minutes and it was so funny. We were all convulsed. We were just convulsed. <laughs> but, you know, I'm sure the minister will remember to this day that story and it had a real impact on um, whether disabled people who knew exactly what piece of kit they needed for their disability could simply say, that's the bit I need, rather than having someone come and assess them and write a report and, uh, and finally turn up with something that isn't what they wanted at all. So that 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 was a, a quite an entertaining, quite an entertaining day. I I did once get the, a present from the Conservative government for my birthday. I came into the house once, especially once. on my birthday for a piece of legislation we were putting through, and um, my amendment wasn't down. I thought, oh my goodness, has been a total muck up. And I went to see the minister, and he said, no, I have a look, and I I had a look and. The, there was an amendment, which was my amendment, but it had the government's name on the top. And I said, that's my amendment. He said, yeah, we, we noticed it was your birthday, so we thought we'd give you it. <laughs> How lovely. I think I had been pretty well persuading them it was the right thing mm -hmm. to do, but it was interesting that they had spotted that it was my birthday. It's a fascinating story. I'm sure there were so, so many. Um, what would you say it takes to become successful in politics, um, particularly as a woman? And what are, uh, can you uh, select maybe top three things that you would say are extremely important and you would give it as advice to aspirational young women who see themselves in, in politics and uh, perhaps in House of Lords eventually? Obviously, you know, beginning to um, get into the political system is a first stage in you know, local politics incredibly useful uh, your local political party your local authority what getting to know your MP offering to help watching your uh, MP in Parliament watching other good MPs in Parliament quite often the think tanks you know or lobbying groups the charities that interface with Parliament a lot that's that's a place to be able to get a job and to relate to Parliament and get some internal experience. So all of that is is really helpful. I think in terms of personal qualities, I always used to say that some of the most successful par parliamentarians, and it's the same with international negotiators, are the ones who don't need any sleep. Uh, you know, it's often last man standing. <laughs> Mrs. Thatcher was a real example of that. You know, she could keep going when all the other folk had collapsed and died. I think not being knocked back by disappointment, because you can get a lot of disappointment in parliamentary life. Being very meticulous about being evidence-based and um, really knowing what you're talking about and listening to the other side's case. Because the other side will have some very strong arguments, in some cases, with ex some excellent foundation. So trying to find middle courses, trying to find ways through that mean that it's not so adversarial, I think is a really important part in the Lords, because that's what we're about, is trying to find the ways to get problems solved that don't mm -hmm. founder on politics. It's probably... A strange thing to say, but the House of Lords has got to be less political than the Commons. And listening to people, making alliances, you've got to harness a lot of support in the Lords to get what you want to happen to happen. 
And that's a really a fundamental part. It ha it's the same in any walk of life in business, but it's particularly so in politics. It, you know, um, always be nice to people on the way up because you never know when you might need them on the way down. <laughs> <laughs> and calling in favours, I voted for your bill on such and such. Now I'm, you know, it'd be great if you felt able to give me a bit of support in this kind of thing. So these kind of horse tradings happen all the time and they're very legitimate. You know, it's not, it's not. Uh, out, of, out of turn. People listen to the arguments and they'll support you if they think you've got a good case and they won't if, you, if they don't. So I think I think persistence, thoughtfulness, the ability to make friends and influence people, inexorableness, you know, it's the same in, it, in any campaigning setting. You, Woody Allen always used to say 95% success was turning up. Well, that's the first rule. You know, if you're not <laughs> there at the right time, on the right issues, you're not going to make headway. But the second rule, I think, is don't go away. Just keep on at it. There were issues that I've campaigned on for 20 years, and we still not won, but we will one day. You know, every time we raise it, we get a bit closer. So things like the assisted dying bill, which I'm very keen on, you know, over the years, the gap between the folks who think it's a good idea and the people who think it's not a good idea is is narrowing. And we will get there one day because that's what mm -hmm. the public want. It's what the public want. And there are other issues in the environment that have been in that, that category as well. So don't go away and enjoy it. You know, we spend too much time at work for us not to enjoy it if you were not enjoying it. And that shows, I think, in some of the set piece work, not the stuff behind the scenes, but when you are actually on your feet in the chamber. Um, if you're if you're confident of your brief, if you know what you want to achieve, if you're actually engaging the House and, and having a real conversation with them, it shows. And that's much more compelling for everyone else. Thank you. Thank you for your advice. You, uh, you touched a little bit upon uh, environment and climate change, and uh, that, of course, is one of your passions and areas of expertise. Um, do you think the government is doing enough in this area of what, what would you like to see more of going forward? We're behind the ball on climate change. Yeah. I'm, I mean, the whole globe is. There are very few countries that are actually doing what they should. We've really got to um, increase the rate of um, not, some very simple things that the public can play a role in. Decarbonising heating of mm -hmm. our homes, decarbonising driving of our cars, not flying as much, not shopping as much. You know, we buy an awful lot of stuff. We don't need it. Some of those things can be done by individuals. Some things can only be done by governments. And government, you know, one of the no-brainers in this country is is um, energy efficiency in the home insulation, uh, heat pumps, all of those things. And none of the government schemes are really making a real impact on that. And mm -hmm. they've dragged their feet for many years on even improving to the extent that can be um, standards for new build of houses. And we've just got to get on with it. Um, that's, and that is one of the key things in the Labour Manifesto that we're developing at the moment. And that is, uh, you know, uh, exponentially increasing the rate at which we do many of the things because we know what to do it's just we've got to get on mm -hmm. with it much quicker the one thing that is also in real trouble is biodiversity and, and 
the declines in wildlife, not only here but globally. And I think we've caught up with that as an issue later in later in the day. But we've got a many of the solutions to climate change are land-based solutions that will also benefit biodiversity if they're done properly. And we've really got to get a grip on that. So I've been lobbying like mad, and I'm becoming chief bore. One of the um, one of the things that you're allowed to do that is boring is just by banging on at something until finally, every time you stand up, everybody shouts, "Land use, land use!" <laughs> at least you know that you've got the, that idea. We've got we've got a peer in in the labour benches who is an ex admiral of the fleet and every time he stands up he manages no matter what he's talking about even if he's talking about waste disposal in Lambeth he can still manage to slide in a request for more ships for the Navy. <laughs> <laughs> well I, I at the moment I'm getting land use into every assurance I make um, but we've got to get smarter about the way we use land because it's absolutely crucial for climate change it's absolutely crucial for biodiversity and it's absolutely crucial for human health people during lockdown, absolutely understood how much they needed the great outdoors and green space, and they flocked to nature reserves and woodlands mm -hmm. and all sorts of places, and even little scrubby bits at the end of their roads. And it was just an absolute vindication of the fact that we 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 need nature, we need the open spaces, and we've really got to start delivering on that as well. Thank you. As we will be moving towards wrap, uh, wrapping up, I have a, a few quick questions that might uh, perhaps not need a lot of lot of thinking. Quick question and answer: Do you listen to podcasts? Not a lot. <laughs> Do you have a favorite one? I uh, I did discover that House of Lords have their own podcast, which is called House of Lords Podcast. Yeah, and it in my in my spare time, the last thing I want to listen to is a House of Lords podcast. <laughs> podcast. <laughs> The only podcast I use a lot of is, um, I hate to say it, is Gardener's Question Time. <laughs> Gardener's? Yeah, I'm a keen gardener and I've got, to, I've got to do Gardener's Question Time every week, otherwise I wouldn't know what to do. I'm sure there will be podcasts on horses. Yeah, I don't know, I've not listened much to podcasts. I mean, I'm, most of the time when I'm horsing around, I'm horsing around. And so <laughs> the last thing you can do when you're on a horse is listen to anything, otherwise you're rapidly not on a horse. <laughs> If your life would not be involved in politics, perhaps in a some parallel life and in par parallel universe, what could you be doing? I think I've been lucky because I've always had jobs, full time or part time, running alongside my life in the House of Lords. You know, so I've I've run big organisations; they've all been fascinating. Um, so I've kind of cheated and had both. If I was thinking of a kind of field that I would get into that I've not really had a go at, you know, I'm still a bit nerdy about where I came from originally and studied classics at university, you know. I still I still have a PhD in me somewhere that's about art and archaeology and ancient history somewhere. Yeah. But whether I'll ever get round to doing it is another matter. Could you share some fun fact or something that perhaps your peer colleagues wouldn't know about it, but you would share that with the listeners? Oh, my goodness. Um, well, there is... Um, well, I'm, some people know about this, but some people don't. I mean, I really am very keen on my horses and spend endless hours 
polishing them. <laughs> and I love them to bits. Other people have children. I've got horses. How many? I've got two at the moment. One very old one whose birthday is next week. He'll be 26, which is Happy the equivalent birthday. of being nearly 80 in mm -hmm. human terms. And I've got a youngster who's been off sick. Oh, at least not sick, but he had an operation. He's been off work for six months and he's just come back into work and he's being a complete honey. And he's the colour of molten gold. When you take his rug off him, it's like the sun rising. In the, it's just amazing. He's a beautiful boy and he's he's full of character and I love him to bits. Yes, your eyes just light up when you were to, <laughs> when you were talking about that. I must Actually, say that... more than when you were talking about the the lords. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to be honest, I mean, when you asked me about is there something I would have liked to have done that I haven't done, I'd really love to run a donkey sanctuary. <laughs> <laughs> I love donkeys. Yeah, really. Mm. So um, that would that would be good. You must still do, be able to do that? Yeah, the problem with donkeys is they live for a very long age. And so, you know, I'm getting on and I wouldn't like to be responsible for lots and lots of animals that were going to live longer than me. I've already I've already got a trust fund set up for my two boys in case I get run over by a bus and they need mm. looked after. So, um, you know, it would be kind of irresponsible of me, but I do love donkeys. Well, I suppose your boys will get more attention if you don't if, if you don't go don't don't kill. This is true. They probably wouldn't approve. <laughs> what is the one thing you'd like to be remembered by? Um, she fought hard. She fought hard. You know, I'm I I can be a bit kind of in your face from time to time, but I'm really caring about something. Um, and I, I'm if I'm thought if I'm remembered for honestly campaigning with all my heart for things that I believe in, that, that'll be fine. And one last final question. Is there some advice or a thought or anything you'd like to leave the listeners with? Um, a lot of them would be younger, some piece of wisdom or anything you'd like, yeah. you'd like yeah. to tell them. I think the most important thing is think out, don't think in. Lots of people overanalyze themselves these days. Just decide what it is that you really have, that you really care about passionately and go for it and spend your time and effort and energy planning how you get it to happen, making the connections, setting the scene, rolling the pitch. I'm a great believer in rolling the pitch, just talking to people about the things that you care about so that they start understanding them. And for me, it's it's having a purpose in life. Lots of people, their purpose in life is them. I think that must drive you crazy. It's got to be a purpose in life that's outside you, that's something else than you. And having that can make a huge difference, I think. It gets you out of bed in the morning. Sometimes it makes you weep in bed at night, but, you know, <laughs> go for it. Go for it. And don't give up. Never give up. There will always be strange opportunities that arise that you never thought of that give you the opportunity and the and the chance to do something big that that you all care about well what a wonderful way to finish 
And what a wonderful piece of advice. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time and uh, sharing about your experience, sharing your wisdom. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And I really enjoyed the interview. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Barbara.